Welcome to the Theater of the Midnight Sun, the 21st century stage for stories, with your host and writer, Michael McGee. This is Michael McGee, and at this venue you'll hear stories of mystery, history, fantasy, farce, sci-fi, spy-fi, the everyday, and the absurd. And pretty much all will be performed by a bunch of regular Joes, just friends and colleagues who in their mild-mannered day jobs are everything from accountants to winery consultants. None of whom, including your host, have a day of experience on the stage, and boy does it show. So hold on tight for the next story on this, The Theater of the Midnight Sun. A reluctant detective in investigating a series of mysterious occurrences finds himself plunged into a nightmare of questions about self, identity, and free will in episode one of the story, Bluebirds and Dead Canaries. Baltimore, Maryland, Monday, 3.11 a.m., the future. I was sleeping, in my apartment, in bed, a perfectly good place for sleeping. But somebody had other ideas. I picked up the phone from my nightstand. I wanted to toss the damn thing, but instead I pulled the earpiece into bed with me, cuddling up with it like the girlfriend I didn't have. What? Nav, you there? No, this is his butler, Xavier. Ha ha. What do you want, PD? It's the middle of the night, remember? You always seem to forget that. Mostly in the middle of the night. Nav, sorry, but me and the boys, we need ya. Mm-hmm. It's important. Petey, it's always important. No, this time it's different. Petey, I have a real job. I have to get up in the morning and sit at my little desk and run through the latest liftings and my boss is not going to like it if I nap through another- Can you just meet me downstairs? You're downstairs? Really? Petey, what are you doing here? We need you to come look at something. Can't it wait till morning? Or maybe my lunch hour tomorrow? No, it's gotta be done now. You know me and the boys. Sometimes we need help with this stuff. Look, it's a big one. What is it this time? Um, we don't know. It's kinda weird. <sighs> Petey, Petey, you are so lucky you are married to my sister. And you are so lucky I don't like how she looks in black. If I come with you, will you promise that this is the last time I have to tag along on your calls? Um... Come on, Petey. Nab, I can't. Right now you're the best bet we got in figuring this thing out. Maybe the only thing. <sighs> Alright. I threw on my robe. My pajamas stayed on underneath. That was the best they were going to get out of me at this hour. I slipped into some sneakers and trudged off for the elevator. The squad car and my stocky brother-in-law with his ultra-blonde and ultra-short crew cut were waiting downstairs, as well as lots of Cherilisi caramels. The candies were Petey's idea of compensation. He knew how much I loved them. As I climbed in, Petey waved the bag of caramels at me like a cat toy. Get bent, Petey. He waved them again till I finally snatched them from him, 
just to humor you. <laughs> yeah, right. I took to opening the bag, wondering when Petey and his partners would actually manage to hire somebody who could tackle crap like this, especially at such ungodly hours. The problem with the boys, and everybody else practically, was that they seemed to have difficulty focusing on things sometimes, unable to really give problems the concentration they deserved, and through extended rumination and hard thought, come up with some real answers. For them, like so many people nowadays, decisions either came too easily or not at all. I was, unfortunately, the rarity, one of the few folks around who could really focus on a problem, deeply concentrate on it, which was how I'd won my job as cryptographer with the State Department. It was sad to say, but at the station house, even those in the detective branch were often at a loss when it came to incidents where they needed to put two and two together and do some constructive thinking, particularly the more difficult cases where you might have to figure out how two and two got you ten. Which is why Petey and the boys always seemed to be dragging me along. Truth be told, I kind of felt sorry for them. Maybe that's why I kept agreeing to go. It allowed them to hold on to their jobs, even if it put my own at risk. Frankly, I was surprised Petey even came and picked me up, proving straight off that this particular outing ranked above the rest. But Petey's notions of quote-unquote favoritude, as he liked to call it, knew no bounds. For if he wasn't requesting my help with some case, he was asking to borrow my books or my galoshes, even my deodorant, being oblivious to any and all protests on my part, because after marrying my sis, he figured himself one of the family now, and forever after it was Mikasa Sukasa, though somehow always Mikasa. Unfortunately, when it came to Petey's latest dead of the night request, I'd soon discover that for the sake of my own sanity, I'd have wished I'd never gotten out of bed at all. A half hour later, we were on the other side of Baltimore. As Petey's patrol car passed the Dunkin' Donuts in the main drag, the only shop lit that time of morning, I popped another caramel in my mouth and pulled down the seat's mirrored visor to check the evening's damage before meeting the rest of Petey's department. Still the same old me. Forty going on sixty thanks to the sleepus interruptus, bags under my eyes, and tufts of black hair sticking up at heinous angles, compliments of my pillow. I licked my hand and tried to smooth down the more rebellious ends, but my hair would have none of it. I just sighed and looked down at the wrinkled t-shirt peeking out from my robe, along with the folds of my belly and what was turning into a significant paunch. Couldn't remember the last time I'd been to Gold's Gym or having a reason for even wanting to work out. Me of the little social life. Guess this is what I got for being a workaholic. All my single friends long since married, no more real nights out in the town except those involving Petey and the rest of his department, and some exercise in the macabre. Somehow it was all fitting, I guess. After all, I was the cynic, and a lazy cynic at that. Maybe there's no other kind. The guy who didn't really care for the way the world was going, or at least half the things he saw in it, but who never did anything about it. What an idiot. Getting off the elevator, the two of us ducked the yellow police tape and squeezed into the apartment to find six more boys in blue, Petey's whole department practically, examining the place. They all looked up at me, 
halting their work, smiling and thanking me for coming. This was the third time this month I'd been called in to help. Different incident each time, and each time they'd been more than a little baffled. But Petey's insistence that this case was far and away above the others seemed even more on the mark, given the overwhelming smiles of relief and appreciation that greeted me. Sergeant Tehackett, or T as he was called, their tall, pipe cleaner-like superior, came and shook my hand. He was of Iroquois descent, something which showed through in his thick black-gray hair and the chestnut brown of his cheeks. He had a rather boyish face, yet tended to act older and sterner than a busload of grandpas. However, ever since my first encounter with him, his devotion to his work and deep sense of responsibility to both the force and the boys had become an inspiration to me. It was yet another reason I just couldn't turn them down. Great, you're here. Thanks for coming, Nab. Sorry about this. Yeah, you and me both, T. Well, you are the brain trust. The one we can always depend upon to devote some real, quote-unquote, quality thought to a problem. <laughs> yeah, quality thought. At four in the morning. I tried to wake up a few more gray cells as I glanced around. The apartment's insides looked worse than its outsides. Much worse. Like the tenant had forgotten he actually lived there. No surprise to me, I discovered the tenant wasn't living there anymore. Or to be more precise, his corpse was sitting in his lazy boy. A dull look on his face. The guy's grungy t-shirt and Levi's stained with a brownish black. He'd been all of 20 years old. I figured he was one of those who didn't exactly believe in showers, given he looked overdue one by a couple of weeks, not to mention a major laundry run. His greasy, sandy brown hair was a mess, the five o'clock shadow underneath it run amuck. The corpse's eyes were still open, an odd, very odd, stare in them. I looked at the department's forensics woman, Gypsum, a white-haired gal with earrings in her tongue. She stood hunched over the fellow, scribbling in her log. So, what did he die of, Gypsum? The scan said heart failure. Heart failure? In a 20-year-old? Ah, maybe the machine's wrong. Who knows? But I don't have time to recalibrate the silly thing right now. The readings said some of the internal organs were also given out. Liver, kidney. His stomach was pretty much DOA, too. All of this in a 20-year-old? The problem is the 20-year-old. What do you mean, T? This is Matthew Megan. Matthew Megan? Of THE Megans? The senator's kid? Yep. Holy Hannah. And you haven't told his family yet? Over on that big palatial island of theirs outside Charleston? At four in the morning? That's why we called you. We didn't want to notify them till we at least had some answers. He's been missing for six months. Six months? There's nothing in the news about it. You know the family name. They wanted it kept hush-hush. According to our records, the deceased had been diagnosed with clinical depression, too. That's understandable. If I were part of the Megans, I'd be downright suicidal. I don't know, Nab. I think it'd be cool. Petey, you'd think being a stripper would be cool. It would. <laughs> ah, Petey. Megan had been on antidepressants since his teens. Expensive ones. His family had hoped to track them through his purchases. And they weren't able to, obviously. Well, he might have been using a fake ID, if he was still taking the meds. Or maybe someone was buying them for him. Reports say he indulged quite frequently in recreational drugs, too. Mr. Party Hardy. 
Stuff like long johns, ice rice. Could any of those have killed him? No. They're powerful, but extremely safe. They're specifically designed that way, which is why they're so extremely expensive. I stared at the fellow's paled face again, moving in to examine his mouth and nose. A strange bit of black was leaking out from both of them, the same color as the stains on his shirt and pants. T, is this black stuff poison or some sort of discharge? It's not blood, obviously. I put my pinky to it. It was sticky. I brought it to my nose and sniffed. The stuff was a little sweet. Garbage littered the floor of the apartment. In studying it, I noticed the discards were mostly of one type. Something which made sense given what I'd just smelled. Gypsum, is this what I think it is? Soft drink from what we can tell. Whisty, probably. Wisty, probably? I glanced at the floor and then around the room at the plastic Wisty bottles that spotted every corner. Several empty bottles formed a nest in front of the fellow's feet. In fact, everywhere I looked, amidst the floor's trash, were empty Wisty bottles. I picked up a few of the closest and sniffed their empty insides. It smelled like it always did, but they were everywhere inside the apartment. I looked at the caps, or rather their undersides. Petey and Tahackett were watching me, like I was doing something phenomenal. To them, maybe I was. Curious, I walked over to a corner of the room's other side, and rummaged through its trash heap, picking up a couple of bottles and caps, and then wandered through the rest of the apartment. My knucklehead brother-in-law tagged along as I went to the bedroom in the back, and scooped up a few bottles there, too. I compared the caps from each of the bottles I'd collected all had the same bottling date on their undersides. Petey, have you taken all the pictures of the place you need? I think so. All right, ask to heck to have the boys gather up all the caps and bottles in the apartment. All of them? All. And have them write down the bottling date under each cap, too. Okay, Nab, will do. It took the guys an hour, tossing bottle after bottle of various size in an enormous pyramid in the corner of the living room. As they went about it, they started whistling the old whisty jingle, but pretty soon that transformed into the far more popular Carson Cola song, its inspiring tune having become so well known and loved it had found its way into numerous pop songs, something that had become a bit of a trend over the years with other catchy commercial jingles, even many that were downright awful. As the boys continued their task, I checked Megan's pants pockets, then went and rummaged through his dresser and other things, including the trash on the floor. I found his leather bomber jacket lying near the door, buried under more trash. I rifled through it. Inside the breast pocket, deep down, was a single card. It looked like a business card, but was completely blank and pure white. Being that the strange card was about the only thing that hadn't ended up on the floor with the trash, I figured there must have been a reason, or most likely Megan had stuck it in his coat before he moved in. I secretly slipped it in the pocket of my robe. I didn't ask if I could, I just did it. Sometimes it was easier with the boys. Decisions occasionally confused them. When the boys had finished piling up the empties, the tally total came to just over 2,100 bottles. Tahackett handed me the recorded list of dates when they were done. With very few exceptions, 
all the bottles had the same manufacturer's date, and all recent, a strange idea began stirring in my head. T, you said he'd been missing for six months? How long had he lived here? Wait, I'll check with the apartment manager. Mrs. Simmons? When did this deceased first start renting the apartment? Really? Thank you. What? He only took the place eight days ago. Eight days ago? Talk about your pigsty bachelor pads. That's quick work. He drank all this in a week? Some 2,100 bottles? Probably 3,000 liters or more? Well, you don't see that every day. <laughs> yeah, Petey. I went to the fridge and opened it. Inside was more whiskey, probably another 50 bottles. I pulled one out and took it with me. Megan obviously knew what he liked, and was certainly bucking the trend, given that the sales of the far more popular Carson Cola had dwarfed that of all the other struggling colas combined for decades. Hell, Megan all by his lonesome had likely caused a spike in Wistie's sales figures. I looked at the room's trash heaps again, going from fridge to hall to the apartment's far corners. As I returned to the living room, an unsettling chill began running through me. Uh, T, you notice anything else about the trash? What do you mean? No food containers. Among all this trash, there are no cans, no food boxes, no snack bags, no leftover containers, and no other drink containers either. No water bottles, no fruit drinks, no wine bottles, not even beer. Our Mr. Party Hardy had ceased even that vice. I leaned against the sofa arm behind me, my eyes slowly scanning the room, taking it all in. Matthew Megan had drank himself to death with your everyday soft drink. You mean all he did while he was here? Was drink whiskey till it killed him. Like it was some kind of drug? But there are people out there who still drink whiskey. It doesn't affect him this way. I had one a couple weeks ago with a burger and an old greasy spoon. And I'm not addicted to this stuff. It's not addictive. Well, there was nothing else in the refrigerator either. No leftovers, no food stuff whatsoever. Only whiskey. This thing was spooking me even more now. I looked at the whiskey bottle I was holding, and then unwound its top and put it to my lips. Nah, don't. Nah, don't worry, Petey. If it acts like some sort of weird drug, you can sign me up for detox. On the police bill, by the way. But I don't think it will. I took a swig, swirled it around in my mouth, and swallowed. I waited a couple seconds, checking, analyzing. Well? Seems the same as ever. Tastes like normal. Petey grabbed the bottle from me and took a slug himself, rolling his tongue around afterward. No adverse effects? Nope. <sighs> you know, you're right, Petey. This is pretty weird. And similar to the other one. What other one, T? We had another case, about a week ago. Another person used whiskey to drink themselves to death? No, it, it wasn't whiskey at all. It was totally different. Similar, but totally different? We've still got the place taped off if you want to see it. It's not far from here. Now? At 4 a.m.? Can't it wait till this evening, after work? Well, sooner in this case is really better than later. Yeah, Nap. It won't take that long. 
Look, fellas, I work better with daily doses of real sleep. I'm a regular prima donna that way. My advice is to put off calling the Megans for a while. Their son's been missing for six months. Another 12 hours or 24 isn't going to make much difference in breaking the horrible news to them. I'm afraid the DA's already been notified. He's not going to want to wait. Oh, really? And I can just imagine who jumped the gun on this one. Mr. B.L. Blabbermouth himself. P.D. What? You'd never know it given the blonde hair. But Petey, deep down, was one of those big Italian types. Last name, Petruccino. First name, Vanini. Which made the Petey nickname entirely forgivable. It's just the rest of him that was much harder to forgive most times. His platinum crop on top fitting him far too well. Nab, the office wants this to be our show. They don't want the feds coming in. Look, T, if you let me sleep, I'll help you all I can to solve what's going on here, I promise. Really? I'm promising to hack it, not you, Petey. As far as I'm concerned, you're in hock up to your elbows for all the times you dragged me out to do your work for you at two in the morning. So if you'd be so kind, bring the car around, James, and take me home. And so ends episode one of Bluebirds and Dead Canaries. The cast included Tom Fahey as Petey, Maggie Irvin as Gypsum, Rick Sallow as Sergeant Tehackett, and in a performance where fortunately no man had gone before till now, I, Michael McGee, play the part of Nab. The music used here was by artists like the incredible Jamie Sieber, Derek Krawcheck, that's K-R-A-W-C-Z-Y-K, whose tune 1791 you're listening to currently, Andrew Potterton, Kumar, Tyler Riggs, and Clouseau. This also included Irving Berlin's tune Crinoline Days, performed by Paul Whiteman and his orchestra from 1922, and were courtesy of websites like Magnatune, Jemendo, Podsafe Audio, SoundSnap, and the Podshow Podsafe Network. Most of the sound effects heard here were courtesy of SoundSnap.com. A full rundown of the musicians and song or composition names can be found on the music page of the Theater of the Midnight Sun website at theaterofthemidnightsun.podbean.com. So that's it for this episode. Check back for episode two of Bluebirds and Dead Canaries. Or click that old subscribe button or follow us to be notified about the release of the next episode. Until then, this is Michael McGee saying, no need to wake Shakespeare or bother Mark Twain, and no use in worrying Broadway or even your local high school thespians It's just us, the theater of the Midnight Sun.